Bibles to or on your phones if you want to not turn the pages but to click the buttons to Philippians chapter 1. Uh, we will be looking at this book for some time. Uh, sometimes we'll take a small section, sometimes we'll take a larger section, sometimes we'll go back over uh, some sections more than once. Uh, but here as we dive in, not just to the introductory remarks that Paul had, but to the substance of it, I'll be focusing here on verses 3 through 5. Uh, but so that we see the broader context, I'm going to read uh, the whole prayer of thanksgiving, verses 3 through 11. This is God's word. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, teach us from your word what you would have us know, that it might strengthen us and encourage us, in Christ, that we too might be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through him to the glory and praise of God. For we ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. How can we thank God when we've got nothing to thank God for? one pastor's reaction to this prayer of thanksgiving. And if I'm honest, it resonates with me. How can we thank God when we've got nothing to thank God for? There is a heavy weight on our world and on our church. I felt it before my sabbatical, but I thought maybe it was just me. But now that I'm back a little bit more rested, I realize it, it's deeper and broader than that. There is a grief, a discontent, a malaise that seems to have infected our whole world. And sure, there are little things here that we might offer the obligatory thanksgiving for, but the substance of the world in which we live seems dark. We could spend the rest of this time going over all the ways that seems to manifest itself. 
how college administrators and high school administrators and middle school administrators are seeing an epidemic of anxiety and depression that is crippling. Crippling people today. And it's not because they're weak snowflakes. There is something else going on. how people are losing their minds on airplanes and in stores over things that five, six years ago, like 10 years ago, we thought were, were unusual. You know, we talked about road rage like it was this weird manifestation of some anger, but now it's everywhere about all the things. It's just a rage, people lashing out at things that seem to have afflicted them. And it's hard to put your finger on it. It's it's hard to just say, this is the thing. We we can point to symptoms, the, the opioid epidemic. We can, can point to the loneliness that is just running rampant through people of all ages. In the most connected age in the history of man, we are more lonely than ever. We can point to the scary increase in suicide. Say, Something's wrong. But what? Like, what will explain it all? I mean, it's easy to say, oh, it's the pandemic. And yet, and you've heard me say this before, and smarter people than me have said this before me, that the, the, the pandemic itself hasn't caused all of these things. Certainly, it's caused its own share of troubles. But what crises like the pandemic tend to do is increase the pressure and reveal the cracks that were already there and speed up and accelerate whatever direction you were already in. And so that we found ourselves in this cultural malaise and sadness says more about us than the pandemic. The pandemic just revealed what was already there. Now, some of you, some of you can point to very specific things. Loveless marriages, wayward children, life-altering illness, the, the disillusion of friendships, the loss of loved ones. Even in that, those deep and real and powerful hurts, there just seems to be a weariness and a grief. We've lost something. We don't really even know what it is or how to grieve it well. And this is maybe little comfort to you, But this feeling is not new to the human race. 
some of our forebears in our tradition described the world in which they lived as an estate of sin and misery. All we've inherited from our fathers is, is an estate of sin and misery. And perhaps no greater or more apt description could be made. How can you thank God in the midst of that when it seems like every good thing is tainted? Paul, Paul the Apostle can empathize with how we feel. Here he is on this this mission to take the gospel to the whole Gentile world. He has all of these plans. He wants to go to Rome. He wants to go to Spain. He wants to, to wherever there are people, he wants to take the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is following the direction of the Holy Spirit. This man from Macedonia appears and he goes straight to that area, which is how the church in Philippi even got started. He wants to gather uh, alms for the poor and he takes them back to Jerusalem to, to care for those Christians who are suffering and hurting there to show them that grace and generosity of the Gentile church. And from that point, he's in prisons. And this, this great mission is brought to a halt. And, and he is just locked up for years while his case works its way up. Sometimes he was in dark, dank prisons. Sometimes he was under the the mercy of house arrest. But everything that he had been about was taken from him. He lost something too. And yet... As he is suffering in this prison, writing this letter to the church in Philippi, he is overflowing with joy and thanksgiving. How? How does he somehow stand immune to that estate of sin and misery and the sadness and despair that it would inflict? There are a lot of ways where actually that's one of the things the whole book of Philippians is about, is what does it look like to, to hold on to joy and thanksgiving even when the whole world is falling apart? Here, he just starts it. He gives us a little glimpse into one of those key reasons. How can he give thanks when it seems like he's got nothing to give thanks to God for? It's because he understands that true joy and and true thanksgiving, these things flow not, not from the inside out. These things flow from outside us, from being connected to something of surpassing worth. And so Paul, right out of the gate, opens his prayer with thanksgiving 
rejoicing that he is connected to things that are of immense and great value. He is connected to the living God himself. He is connected really and truly to his people, especially and particularly those in Philippi. And he is connected to the mission that God has set himself to in this world. He's connected to God. He's connected to the church. He's connected to the gospel mission. So we're going to take a look at those three things and see if we might not learn what it means for joy to come to us, that we might overflow with thanksgiving, even though it seems like there's nothing to give thanks to God for. The first thing I want us to see is summed up in these two words where Paul says, I thank my God. And in those words, we see that there is a joy in our connection to the living God, in our connection to Christ. It's understandable and not remarkable at all. It's common, in fact, for us to feel disconnected from God from time to time. But sometimes we let that be the last word. And it seems, maybe you feel this way, that in the midst of all the weight and the burdens that you're bearing, whatever they may be in your life, the the things that you can name and the things that you can't name, you feel like your prayers don't even pierce the ceiling tiles. So disconnected you, you are. And yet Paul, locked away in prison, doesn't feel disconnected from God at all. You can speak of him as my God. It's like when you, you introduce someone you love dearly, not just as, this is Tracy, this is my wife, Tracy. We are connected. This is my son, Wilkes, my daughter, Ella. This is my church, my pastor. Like It's not a, Sometimes, I'm sure, in the brokenness of this world, it can be a a tyrannical term of possession, but usually it's a sign of deep, an abiding connection. There is a deep, personal, and a rich connection to this person. And so when Paul speaks of my God, he's not putting himself over God as if he's the owner, but he's saying, I know him, and I know what he's about. And he can give thanks in all his remembrance of the Christians in Philippi. He remembers what it was like to go there and plant a church. Like, if I were going to, like, pick a region to plant a church, it would not be Philippi. He shows up, and as is his practice, he wants to go to the synagogue and preach to the Jews who are already religious, who already understand the Old Testament, who are awaiting a Messiah, and yet there aren't, Ten religious Jewish men in the whole city of Philippi, which was the minimum requirement to have a synagogue. And so he goes to the outskirts of the city where he hopes there's a gathering place for those who are devout to pray. And he meets Lydia. And the Lord changed her heart. This seller of purple cloth whose life was probably all about marketing and sales and metrics is like, come, come stay with me. Let me give to you. 
He meets a slave girl who is possessed by a demon. And is, like, it's not that Philippi wasn't religious, but it was just all about oppression and selfishness. These guys owned this girl and just made bank with her, predicting people's fortunes, and they couldn't care less about anything else. So that when God displayed his power, and Paul and the power of the Holy Spirit commands that demon to be gone in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that girl who was oppressed was set free. And the people were angry about it. They they did not rejoice. What amazing power this is. No, they were angry. You took away our money. You took away the thing that we loved. And there was this jailer. Who knows why he was a jailer? Maybe that was like the pinnacle of his uh, career options. Maybe he was paying off a debt and enlisted in that service. We don't know. But we do know that he wasn't going to stick around after he thought all the prisoners had been freed by an earthquake and he was ready to kill himself until Paul says, no, no. We're here. That earthquake you heard, that was sent from God, but we are here. Don't do yourself any harm. And he's converted. And if you, if you could think of a more ragtag group to put together as a church, I'd like to hear it. God loves to redeem people. He loves to set the oppressed free. He loves to save the sinner from their sins. He loves to spare life. In fact, to bring life out of even death. To bring light into dark places. And Paul knows this God. And when you know the heart of God, doesn't matter what darkness you face. No place to gather for fellowship with Christians. It didn't dissuade Paul because he knew his God was able. Being assaulted by a demon-possessed girl who was just absolutely annoying the daylights out of you and infringing on your ministry, it didn't dissuade Paul. He was able in the power of the Holy Spirit to set her free to the glory of Christ. even being thrown in jail that time. It didn't throw Paul into despair. He knows the heart of God. He knows that God is at work. He knows that God hears his cries no matter where he is so he can overflow with joyful thanksgiving. Maybe if you're struggling to find a joy in this time, maybe. It's because you've lost sight of the heart of God. And your prayers sound like, more like going through the line at Chick-fil-A and making an order. They sound like the psalmists. 
The psalmists knew the heart of God, and when they endured hardship and trial and suffering and tribulation, they made no bones about it. Where are you, God? What are you doing? How long? Yet, it wasn't them shaking their fist at God in anger. It was them calling out and crying out to him because they knew his heart. Yet, you, O oh God, are my rock. You are my salvation. I know I will live to praise your name because of who you are. Can you talk to God that way? Where there's, there's nothing, nothing getting in the way. Where all the rawness of who you are, where all the reality of where you live is just poured forth to God and there is nothing separating you from him. And you know, even though It seems like there is nothing but cloud and darkness. You know that God smiles upon you with blessing and mercy and grace because he's your rock and your salvation. Maybe you've struggled to find joy because you've lost sight of the heart of God and he is a God or the God to you, and not my God. This is why the elders decided to start a prayer time every week. Not not just because that's what churches do. Because we want to become a community that is trying and striving and growing together to just pray honestly before God. Children, old, young, if you work third shift and you come and fall asleep, like better to be there in prayer than elsewhere. Some of you don't know how to pray. You don't know what it means to pray like the psalmist pray. You don't know, you've never even been taught. You haven't put into practice that, that kind of deep, personal, rich connection to the Lord. What are you waiting for? He invites you to call on him as your God. Come learn what that means. Let's learn together. There is joy in our connection to Christ. There is also joy in our connection to other believers. You see that he gives thanks to, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. We live in a world where we are more afraid of what other people think Than, than we ought to be, that's for sure. And it's hard to be joyful when you're afraid of others, afraid of being canceled, afraid of being called out, afraid of being judged, afraid of being ridiculed, afraid of being cut off, afraid of being ignored, afraid of being unloved. I have one of those apps on my phone that like just recycles picture memories out of my photo library and it's 
It's great when it's great. Oh, I remember that. That was a sweet time. Oh, haha, I'm going to send that to my kids. They don't remember this, but I do. Then every once in a while you get a picture and it calls up darker memories. Oh, they're not with us anymore. Oh, what happened to our friendship? We don't We don't think about other people. Our culture has taught us to think about how other people affect us. The way we remember other people is all about us. What feelings does it bring to me? What what does it do to me? But Paul, when he thinks about others, he's thinking about others. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. When he remembers the people in Philippi, he's full of joy. And, and look, it's not because everybody in Philippi was awesome that they were trouble-free and they were like the easiest church a pastor could ever want. Like later in this letter, we're going to find out there's some ladies that are arguing about something so silly Paul doesn't even mention what it is. There are people that are looking to, to just twist and, and pervert the very gospel of Christ in and around Philippi. There are struggles. There are people that are sick. There are people that are missing their loved ones. Like He is dealing with these things. He knows them. But when he thinks about them, he doesn't get caught up in what he's getting out of it. When he thinks about this church, he is floored by what his God is doing in them. The reason that he can be so thankful and so joyful when he thinks about a church that is just like any other church, full of problems, is because he sees God's gracious work in them. It's not instantaneous. It takes time, but it's real. This church has just sent Paul a gift that he didn't ask for, he didn't need, but it was a joy and a comfort to him in his imprisonment. One of their members risked his life to deliver it. It wasn't like just calling an Uber up on your phone and driving a few miles and dropping it off in the mailbox. Like This was a long trip with no guarantee that you wouldn't be shipwrecked or robbed or just die on the way. And Paul sees in that, not, not the gift, grace at work to elicit that gift. God who is doing something in these people, he knows them really and truly and rightly with all their warts and all their wrinkles and he still overflows with joyful thanksgiving because his God is at work in them. Are your thoughts of others filled with that kind of hopeful joy? Paul, he thinks about them often. 
There, there's a frequency to it. He, like there are people, and we, I do this. I confess I do this. Like people, they come to mind. You know, I don't really want to think about that right now. Let me check Twitter. Let me find something to be angry about. Maybe it's embarrassment. Maybe it's bitterness. Maybe it's the pain of loss. Paul, he thinks of them often and he dwells on it. And he gives thanks for them all, not just the ones he likes. All of them. And there's a focus on their real needs. Like he's not unmindful of what they really need. It's not, I just think generally, you know, oh, you know, God's at work in the night. Like, Lord, be at work in this way. And he's hopeful, not because he has a whole lot of confidence in the people in the church in Philippi. He's hopeful and full of joy because he has a whole lot of confidence in what Christ is able to do in them. remember others? How do you think of others? Is it about what you are getting out of it? Or do you have a real joy and hope that God can work? Even in the darkest of times. Think, Paul is, Paul is the guy who went around killing and imprisoning Christians until Jesus showed up. You're thinking to yourself, there is no way this person, there's no way this relationship can be restored. There's no way. Paul's like, oh, yes way, there is a way. Why would you stop hoping? Why would you stop praying? Why would you hide from the remembrance of those people? Early in our marriage, Tracy and I had this time when there was something that she was doing that was driving me nuts. I know none of you spouses are married to anybody that has any qualities like that. There was some, and I'm, the, the story goes both ways. There are things I do that drive her nuts. But this story, she was doing something that was driving me nuts. And I, but I couldn't, it wasn't a big deal. I couldn't figure out how to talk to her about it that didn't sound dumb or selfish. And it's all about not sounding. Or it's, it's all about the PR. I was like, Lord, I don't know what to do. And I'm praying about it. And I'd finally gotten to the place where I'm like, I'm just going to have to live with it. Like, I'd rather just live with it than embarrass myself by talking about it. And like a week or two later, like out of the blue, she's like, you know, I've been really praying about this thing. And I realized like, I really want to work on that. I hadn't said a word. Now you're wondering, what was it? And that's the thing. I don't know. I don't remember. It was dumb. But what I do remember is being amazed and awed that God is at work in people, even in those little things, in those little moments. When you remember people, is there that hope and joy that comes from knowing them rightly, knowing who they are in relation to the living God or who they need to be? There's joy in our connection to other believers. We shouldn't hide from it. 
But there's also joy in our connection to God's mission in this world. We live in a culture that very much wants to shape us in a form of radical individualism that is unsustainable, frankly. It is a selfish, selfish culture. It's all about your likes. It's all about your well-being. It's all about your sense of fulfillment. It's all about your identity. It's all about you. And the reason that's unsustainable is because when you make it all about you, it, everything and everyone else becomes a tool for you, for your advancement, for your comfort. And you will crush people. And we see that happening, don't we? People so fired up about whatever it is they're fired up about, whether it's politics or religion or cars or movies or pineapple on pizza, that they are just going after everybody around them. And if you think you're immune to those cultural influences, you would be the only one in the history of the world other than Jesus. And yet, God invites us into something different, to be shaped and formed not by a selfish culture, but by something bigger, something better. When I was growing up, I grew up in the church and was converted through the ministry of my youth pastor. Some of you have heard my testimony before. And, and there wasn't a moment. There was a, a process that, that the Lord took me through where I became more and more aware that church wasn't just something we did. It was bigger than that. It was way bigger. We went to this conference called Breakthrough right after Christmas, right before the new year, breaking into the new year. And I, I'd never been to anything like it before in my life. There were like 900 kids there. I'm looking around just amazed. And it was sort of the first time I'm like, oh, this isn't just a thing my family does. My youth pastor took me under his wing would, and not just me, several of us in the group, and would, he was invited to speak at all these different conferences, and he would bring us to be a part of that ministry to other people. There were opportunities to share. That's where I first sensed a call to ministry. I was a part of something bigger, and it took hold of my whole life. And not everybody that that was a part of that group, went on into ministry. Some did, some didn't. But, but that partnership in the gospel that we had was real and lasting, and that shaped us, that new mission. The word here for partnership is the Greek word koinonia, which is a word fellowship. It's not just about the money, giving money to the missionaries. It is about 
our shared fellowship in Christ and our shared fellowship in mission, shared with one another and with Jesus, that he has made us a part of his work in this world. And as we read earlier in 2 Corinthians, his work is redeeming the whole world. Find a bigger cause to be associated with. And so Paul isn't, isn't too put out by being put in prison because he understands he's a part of something bigger that his God is about through all of his people. And so he can overflow with joy and thanksgiving. What are you about? What is shaping and guiding your life? We'll see as we continue to study this book that there are people that can take that selfish individualism and even like sprinkle it with gospel stuff and still be all about themselves while they tack on a little religion and faith there. It's easy to fool yourself. But God, our God, who's at work in his people is also at work through them and he invites them to participate. He invites you to participate in his work in redeeming the whole world. What would it look like? What would it look like if you took that seriously? Now, this is the moment where some of you are like, oh, no, here comes the high-pressure thing. Maybe. I mean, I'll let the Holy Spirit pressure you. We had an evangelism class in seminary. That was great. It was, it was good to you know, study different ways of doing evangelism, different frameworks, different, different approaches. But the joke was that like, the final was going to be go to the mall and can get 15 people to pray the sinner's prayer in 15 minutes using only three out of the four spiritual laws. Like, it, was, like, it, it was this high, you know, the, the joke was we're, we're having a class on evangelism because like, you know, it's going to be this high stakes, high pressure, like go do it now, right now. That's not, Paul's in prison. The church in Philippi is the church in Philippi. Living life together. This isn't isn't like stepping into something super radical, high pressure craziness, like go and exhaust yourself in a frenzy of effort. But think about it, just, do a, my, a mental experiment with me. What would it look like if you prayed earnestly for, for a whole year? A year. Make it two, if that makes you feel better. For one person, for one family that you know needs to know the Lord. And to be open to opportunities for the Lord to use you in their life. Not to, You don't have to force it. You don't have to go knock on their door at 2 a.m. and throw Bible tracts through their windows or whatever. Like, what would it look like for you to pray earnestly for two years for a person or family and be open to the Lord bringing opportunities for you to be used in their life? 
What if the Lord answered all of those prayers? This church would double in size in two years. And not just this church. I'm, I'm not talking about Calvary. What if the whole peninsula, every Christian did this? Like, what if the, the Christians throughout the world, this, where the church is growing, this is what they're doing. It's not some magic technique. They're praying. They're open to being used, to be participants in what God is doing in this world. Sometimes God doesn't answer the prayers that we pray. What if he only answered 10% of those prayers? Sometimes we get so caught up in ourselves and our grief and our loss We lose sight of joy because we lose sight of the things out there that are bigger than us that are of surpassing worth. So where is your focus? All of these things are outside of you. Your mission in this world to participate in what Jesus is doing. Your connection to other Christians here and throughout the world. Your connection to your God. They're all outside of you. True joy is incompatible with being absorbed with stuff. True joy is incompatible with selfishness. True thanksgiving is incompatible with it all being about you. So Paul can be rotting away in prison and overflow with joyful thanksgiving because he knows the surpassing worth of knowing his God, our God, who works in his people and through his people to change the world. What would it look like for you to respond to him, for you to focus on that? It might look a lot like the Paul's joyful thanksgiving. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, be with us. We have the very thing our culture needs. We have the very hope and joy it is hungry and thirsty for. And it's not because we're smarter or better. It's because of you, because of your work. Lord, we see you going out into this world to bring that joy and thanksgiving into the hearts and lives of people from all places. Help us to be a part of that, Lord. Help us to reconnect with you and one another that we might share in that joy and that we might share that joy and thanksgiving with all who have ears to hear. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.